DarbyCast, Wild Card Friday, and I've been saying it for a minute now that I would get a guest on the show or a co-host or something like that, and that would be the beginning of season two of the DarbyCast, and I got to tell you, I got somebody sitting across from me, computer scientist and extra cool guy. Uh, he refers to himself as Z in these crazy times. Not willing to use his actual name like a bitch, but who am I to judge? I write books under a pen name. Anywho, Z, welcome to the show. Like, this is going to be an adventure. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I love Darby Cast. It, oh, really? Do you listen to it often? Quite often. That's great. So because you're a big tech guy, I figure we just talk about, you know, your expertise. Uh, do you like websites? Uh, websites are cool. I go to McDonald's.com. That's funny because I, I know that's not a joke. You have the McDonald's app? McDonald's knows where I'm at at all times. They got the location services, which you need to enable to use the app which is pretty crazy. Think about that. All you want to do is order a Big Mac and use the coupon in the app for the buy one, get one for 25 cents. So I'm trying to get two Big Macs. The only way to get your order started is to have GPS turned on because they wait till you get to the restaurant. So if you don't give your phone or the app access, then you can't, you can't order online. Think about that. What am I supposed to think about? Like what, you know, I think privacy is a big issue these days for a lot of people. Frankly, I think that conversation's come a little late. We've passed the uh, proverbial event horizon. We are now through the wormhole of zero privacy. But what is McDonald's going to do with your location? Because we all know McDonald's, that clown's no joke, right? Oh, Ronald is Ronald's my boy, but what I'm trying to say here is McDonald's, hey, it's not that big of a deal in the McDonald's app because, hey, you're going to the store anyway. They know where you are. You order online, you go pick it up in the store, and they know you've been at the store. So that example maybe isn't the best, but the point is, and this has been in the Wall Street Journal, it's been the news in the past couple of weeks, is your data is many apps sell your location data. And you might not even know that. The only way that you would really know is to go through the privacy policy and read the whole thing, which is absurd because these policies are written in legalese that nobody understands. Even someone like a lawyer would probably take 30 minutes to fully understand a standard privacy policy. So any app that uses your location, and by the way, many apps sell your location for money to tracking companies, and you wouldn't know unless you had the privacy policy. So this whole thing is, is very real. It's not just, oh, people might, might know where I am, but I don't know. No, they do. As a matter of fact, the, they just released information, I think it was the FBI and IRS, were paying these data providers for GPS locations to track potential criminals without a search warrant. This is real. This isn't just a hypothetic. So basically you're saying the Fourth Amendment is pretty much dead 
and you don't necessarily have any privacy or an ability to protest an unwanted whodunit on, you know, what you're up to. The issue here, I'm no lawyer, but I dabble. Um, It's true. I know that. And the, the Fourth Amendment, the unreasonable searches and seizures is based on someone not consenting to those. If you willfully give up information, the Fourth Amendment does not hold. So these apps where you share your data, you are agreeing to do this. Right. But you're also making the argument that without being somewhat of a studied legal analyst slash expert, that you might not have the correct agency to even give that consent. Would that hold up in court? Could I go into a courtroom and be like, your honor, I'm an idiot. I didn't understand the language used and the uh, contractual obligation that I, or the consent form that I signed, I'm revoking that consent and I never could have given it because I'm too big of a dummy in the first place. You can check. I'm not an attorney. Boom. Gotcha. (laughs) I've seen pushes to force these companies to use more standard language, but we're basically getting into the question of, is a contract valid then? If we can't expect someone to read a contract, and what contract can you can you rely on? It's hard to go in after the fact and say, I do not understand when you're agreed to these privacy policies before. And the truth is, a lot of these so-called free services, which we've talked about, you know, these free services like Google, they're not free. They're selling your data. And Everyone knows that. You know that when you use Google Maps and Google Search Engine and Google Voice and all these mostly free features, it's not free. They're getting something out of it. And I think everyone knows that. So would you actually pay if you had that option? And I think most people probably would still say, no, I'll take the free one. Do what you want with my data. But I don't know. It's interesting. There's a new mail. Um, email company. And I think it's called a uh, Hey, Hey Mail, something like that. It's H-A-Y or H-E-Y? That's I think pr- it's H-E-Y. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's $99 a year from what I understand. And they say they don't sell anything, none of your data. Are you buying it? I'm very seriously considering it. I really am. No, I mean, are do you believe that oh. they won't? Are you buying the concept? Oh, the concept that they don't sell your data. Mm-hmm. I do. Because, first of all, it would be complete fraud if they were lying. They would, and you don't start a company trying to get – it would be a matter of time before someone found out. They wouldn't be able to hide it. So I just don't see someone who's trying to make a quick buck to be potentially – have to pay it back plus more damages. I don't really see them trying to lie. But that's a good point, though. You never quite know. You never know because they have access to all your data. So you'll never know behind the scenes what's going on. And what kind of things do you think companies are doing with said data? Because I think there's probably a wide variety of things that you can do with a person's data. I think probably the most widespread version is reselling that data to give better, to serve better ads. So. 
I mean, that's kind of part of the phenomenon of seeing an ad for something. And maybe you hadn't even talked about it with anybody. Maybe you had been thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, you've got ads to go to Bermuda. And, you know, you had thought about that years ago when you listened to the Beach Boys. Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take you to Bermuda, Bahama. Come on, baby mama. And somehow these companies, through big data, they know that that's always been a a big fantasy getaway for you. Is that a thing? I'm sure it is. The power of data is incredible. I'm not sure if most people realize that. And I think this kind of started even five, 10 years ago, back when Target, many people have heard the story where Target was sending pregnant ladies special coupons for things like diapers and cribs, things like that, where it might've been a minor And this young lady hasn't even told her parents she's pregnant. The only way they know is based on your rewards card. When you put in your number, when you check out, they were able to predict that you are pregnant. And people in your family might not have even known that yet. So it was a big thing where parents are finding out their daughter was pregnant before the daughter even told them, which is really crazy. And I guess that's not that crazy if they're already buying stuff like pregnancy tests. It's pretty easy to predict if you have that data. But things like Facebook and Google, where they have access to so much data, Facebook is able to put people into categories. So what they do is they crunch tons of data and they try to predict what kind of person you are. It was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, I think maybe a year ago. You're a big Wall Street Journal guy. I, I, I like the Wall Street Journal. But it came out that Facebook was putting individuals into categories as specific as likely to text in awkward situations. So think about that. No one says in their hobbies on the Facebook page, my hobby is when I get into awkward situations, I pull up my phone and start texting to avoid uh, the awkward situation. No one says that in their hobbies. No one says that in their interests. They probably don't even mention that at all to their friends in any messages. They're able, Facebook is able to deduce this information based on all kinds of other data, which is really crazy if you think about that. And they might know things that a person themselves doesn't even know. They might know you better than you know yourself, which is really scary. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think... um... I think you get into uh, in a pretty dicey territory. You can get into dicey territory, especially, you know, have you seen the movie Minority Report? A long Pre- time ago. Uh, it's with about predict. Yeah, with, with good old Tom, who has aged like maybe three days since 1990. I don't know how he does it, but that's not important. What is important, however, the whole uh, Minority Report whodunit is predicting future crime. And it was very interesting because I read something the other day. Uh, One of my buddies who has taken up the cause of uh, explaining to his people who follow him on Instagram how to be a better person, which everybody needs. We all need friends who step out and shame you and tell you you're no good. But he was saying that certain police departments were looking into big data analysis of their officers to figure out which officer would be 
most likely to commit a big whodunit, unauthorized misuse of force. So it's interesting because somebody will read that, maybe compartmentalize it and be like, oh, it's good for police. But you got to understand that's a that's a two way street and a double edged sword, is it not? People don't like the idea of predetermined fate. It's a really scary thing because if you believe that, then you almost have to assume that you are not in control of your destiny. But what makes it tough is that people don't necessarily change much. So I'm sure some of this predictive power is very accurate, but it is scary. Someone said, oh, well, we predict that you're going to be a bad person. Well, first of all, I have no way to defend myself. I'm guilty now without having even committed a crime. Just the idea of that can really lower the morale of the entire organization. So it's a scary idea, even if it is powerful, even if it does work, right? Yeah. And then you have to decide what level of reliability really works for you. If it fucks over a few people, maybe it's worth it. It fucks over a bunch of people. Maybe a bunch of people give pushback. But it's very interesting how people are uh, sold on these ideas. They're marketed and packaged to people as like, oh, it's totally for you. It's a feature. <laughs> like, it's great. <laughs> but then it ends up being used in a way that is um, quite different from the marketing pitch. I think, you know, just a prime example of that is uh is smartphones in general, right? Where you look at the commies, right? In China, they've got their surveillance system that is incredibly robust, but it's using cameras everywhere, they're using facial recognition, and people in in the US are like, "Huh, those commies. Boy, do they hate freedom." And it's like, "Listen, you have one of the greatest surveillance devices with you." at all times. It's recording things you say, you're videoing a shit ton of things, and you're documenting things. So it's really interesting how not only are people willingly allowing themselves to be surveilled at every point, but they're also through cool social media posts, sharing your experiences, people are effectively spying on other people. And you and I have talked about this. It's like, thank goodness when we were big idiots back in college, or I'll say bigger idiots uh, back in college, thank goodness we didn't have to deal with the ubiquity of smartphones and people videoing everything. Boy, there's probably a lot of shit that people, they're just not having as much fun in college because they're worried about, you know, some idiot from their social class named Bobby blowing up their spot, showing up at the party and being like, gotcha. Oh, yeah. That, that scares me every day. Something getting taken out of context, either in a video or a soundbite, and just getting it posted online and the mob seeing it and sending you death threats. That scares me. I probably think about that. I, I think about that quite a bit. And back when I was in college, there was, I probably said something every day that if it were recorded, I would get death threats. 
I would just say ridiculous stuff all the time. And it must be tough to be a kid nowadays because when you're when you care about social media, if you're doing the videoing and posting all the time, you care more about that than being in the moment. And that's that's a sad thing because you're never enjoying right now. You're constantly looking at what can I post to social media to make my life look good? And you don't enjoy just being with your friends. I personally have felt that. I'll be with my sisters love Snapchat and they used to just pull out their phone and start videoing all the time. And we would be drinking, start getting a little bit rowdy. And I just don't want that kind of thing documented. So I would just start moderating myself much more than I usually do. And it's not as much fun. You're too busy worrying about other things and just being in the moment. And it's getting worse and worse with different cell phones and different, you know, there's cameras everywhere now. This is toxic for kids. It's crazy how, how much this just infects their mind with social media. And we've talked about this. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I think that kind of hammers home a theme, a glaring weakness in, uh, I don't know. I think all the goings on of right now is, is what you mentioned. How do How do the things that are, that adults are struggling with, how are kids doing it? Are they simply so immersed in it that many of them don't have the ability to step back and analyze and be like, eh, there's a lot of fucked up stuff going on. That could be the case. But I think most uh, societies in general can be judged on how well are you taking care of the children and how well are you taking care of the elderly And right now, I would say on the whole, we are doing complete uh, dog shit. And technology plays a factor in that. You could, I think you could basically relate uh, the ubiquity of tech, I don't know, correlate it with a lot of things. But there is, uh, there's a whole lot of instability, social instability that has arisen out of these pervasive technologies. So, you know, it's funny, actually, right now, I'm looking over and I see your Apple Watch. And I'm personally wearing the original Casio G-Shock. I have two pieces of information on my watch. I got the time and I got the date. I'm looking over at your Apple Watch and that gives me anxiety. There are all kinds of colors and dials and different buttons, it looks like. I have no idea. But looking at that makes me anxious. Yeah. Well, that way, Apple can measure my heart rate and my location data to understand my mental and emotional state, even if I'm not talking, which is important for Apple because privacy is at their core. Yeah, it's real interesting. The idea of having so much data is so brand new in recent history. And the way you can compute this data, I think most people are in way over their head. They do not understand how these algorithms, these machine learning algorithms work. And you might say, okay, so what? They have my heart rate, my location, how I'm walking, my gait, right? So if I'm swinging my left arm a little bit higher than my right arm, which they might be able to tell from different devices, you might say, okay, so what? Because as a human, 
if I was standing next to you and I saw this, even if you had a heart monitor on, I might say, okay, your heart rate's going up right now. You seem like maybe you're a little bit anxious. Your blood pressure's a little bit higher. But as a human, you can't crunch numbers in the same way a computer can. This computer that, that has all the data from you can literally find patterns that say, oh, your heart rate goes up every time you're in this one GPS location, which might be in Arby's. Maybe for some reason, every time you go to Arby's, your heart rate goes up. Maybe you're excited. You're about to get some of that roast beef in your mouth, you know, like something really yummy. Lord knows that's true. I mean, everybody loves Arby's, you know. I mean, if you don't, something's wrong with you, but... <laughs> We are not affiliated at the DarbyCast with Arby's yet. Not yet, but we're, we're working on it. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get sponsored because we just love Arby's. But anyway, just the idea of being able to find these patterns, a computer can be programmed to do very easily, and it just runs for hours, hours, days, and days and crunches numbers. So that's why I think there's a disconnect with what people think goes on or how it works because as a human – we're not made to crunch numbers in that fashion, just rote uh, analyzation of every single type of pattern that you can find. For example, like I was saying, if I had a heart rate monitor hooked up to you and I could look at it whenever I wanted, how long would it take me to deduce that every time you go to Arby's, your heart rate goes up? I'd have to be probably actively looking for that kind of pattern just to affirm that it exists. And I probably wouldn't notice otherwise. It's just such a hard pattern to pick up on. However, if you go to Arby's maybe five or six times and your heart rate goes up all six times, the machine learning algorithm could probably figure that out just from limited data like that. Very valuable data for Arby's who may want to serve you more ads reminding you to show up at Arby's. But I think that's a conceptually that is the big whodunit of it all is, okay, so you crunch all this data, you have highly specific information about people's behavior, then you get into, uh, I'll touch back on your point of the concept of free will, using this kind of data is the ability to influence people both subtly and flagrantly increasing? I'd say yes. What are your thoughts on that? I'd say definitely. And again, most people do not realize how fluid their opinions are, how controllable they are. There's all sorts of interesting cognitive experiments where they try and trick people into thinking something or changing their their decisions based on different options or, or For example, um, I think a lot of people might know this example, but um, the way they choose sizes of drink cups or the sizes they pick for uh, fries, they have a small, medium, and large. And it's pretty interesting where if you take out one of the options, like if they just had small and large, you might always pick small because large is just way too big. But when they add the medium option in, you look at the prices and you say, well, I want a medium, but then the large is only 10 or 15 cents more. And that's that's goes from 315 to 330. So for 15 cents more, uh, which is a very small portion of the entire, you know, $3.30, I might as well just get large. So just by adding a medium, you end up picking large. 
where if they didn't have the medium, you'd go with small. And stuff like this has been proven to, to have a big effect, which is really interesting. Things like this abound throughout the retail sector. You're going up against PhDs in psychology and behavior modification and sociologists. You're telling me Facebook doesn't have teams of researchers? I mean, this 14-year-old kid has no, they have no chance to beat the algorithm when they're going up against teams of, of researchers, teams of the smartest people in the world. Certainly. Certainly. I mean, I think about it, I go to a place of thinking about politics. I don't generally think as much about fries, although that's a hot example. Everyone loves fries. Yeah, everybody loves McDonald's. Um, you've got the McDonald's app. Let's not forget about that. But uh, I think about it in really a political standpoint, you can really influence somebody uh, in a powerful way by the information that you know about them and then the information that you choose to serve them. Uh, you told me, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, you were talking to me about Facebook and how they did that internal study that showed that over time their algorithms pushed people in more extreme yeah. directions in terms of their political views. And so if you're looking at the goings on of right now, which it I don't know. It feels like there's plenty of political extremism happening in the country. You got to think how much of that is, how much of this would be going on if we didn't have the tech apparatus? And what kind of percentage could you attribute the change in behavior, the change in attitudes? What percentage could you attribute to, I don't know, maybe the amount of time? Uh, and the specific accounts that people are following online, I'm sure you could if you were if you could crunch all that data, right? That's a tough thing to calculate because there's so many variables, right? I mean, you have social media, yes, but you also have, in general, I think opinions probably change throughout time. You had revolutions and divisive politics. It seems like forever, ever since history has been documented, you've had coups and forced takeover. So it's really hard to isolate the variables. But my personal opinion is that social media has a huge effect on this. And I can't prove that like, you know, again, way too many variables, but you just, you look at what we do have, the data we do have, and, and Facebook themselves have, they come out saying their platform based on their own internal studies that is divisive. It's well-documented. And yet they chose to continue it that way. They had a choice. And this is what the internal documents show, is they had a choice to make it less divisive, but they also realized by doing that, users would have spent less time on the platform. And hey, this is capitalism. The goal is to make profit. Let's not fool anyone. Facebook is a, a huge publicly traded company worth billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. They are in it for the money, nothing else. Maybe when they first started, they had a good idea for helping people get connected, things like that. I don't doubt that. But as you become publicly traded, you have shareholders, you have quarterly earnings calls where you have to explain why you didn't make as much as last quarter, why you haven't hit your targets. You eventually become, it's all about profit. So these kinds of companies are not here to help. They're here to make money. Whether they help or not, if they can help, I'm sure they would do it but not if it costs them money. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. 
I mean, if you look at the, I guess, decline of religiosity in the country, um, and you see that there isn't that same kind of internal governing moral code, it's not as though corporations necessarily have an ethical compass like a person would, right? Uh, where it's like, nah, I don't want to fuck that person over because realistically, it doesn't have a huge effect on uh, the corporation. If I'm a corporation and I fuck you over, I'm probably not going to hear about it, right? If in our day-to-day interactions, I consistently fucked you over, you'd probably have something to say about it and I'd feel like an asshole. So there's definitely some, as companies have gotten bigger and bigger, there's definitely some uh, depersonalization that has happened, a lot of ideological fragmentation, and I don't know, it's kind of a big whodunit. I know I say that often. I I think that's probably one of the biggest factors in the decline of our moral and ethical culture is the idea of huge companies. We've progressed to a mostly winner-take-all society because you have the Especially with technology, you're not talking about tangible goods. You design one algorithm, and then if it's good, everyone will use yours, so you become the main winner. So the bigger companies get, the chain of command starts to inflate. Uh, So let's say you're a rank-and-file employee, and you're 10 steps away from the CEO. You think the CEO cares about whether you get fired or not? And let's just backtrack for a second. Remember when there used to be a lot more family-owned businesses in the community before outsourcing and globalization and big technology? Well, you went to the same school as the owner's kids. Uh, I mean, your kids went to the same school. Maybe you did too. Uh, Maybe you go to the same church as the owner. You know each other in the community. That guy knows. If he fires you or just treats you like a piece of equipment, He's going to hear about it. People in the community will know uh, because people speak. But when there's a huge company and there's 10 layers between you and, let's say, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, he doesn't care about you. You don't live in the same community. You'll never go to the same school, the same golf club, the same restaurant as Jeff Bezos. So when he's making decisions, it's not about you. It's about purely financial, purely economical, what makes sense for our company? What what will make us the highest bottom line? Because he'll never have to hear from you. He'll ne- you, you don't even have a way to talk to him. There's so many people in between. And it's designed like that. It's made on purpose like that. And it's a tough thing nowadays because Amazon is taking out more and more retail areas where Amazon is one of the largest employers in the U.S. Um, I mean, they do a really, the the thing is that you'd have a hard time arguing against is Amazon is good at what they do. They do it very efficiently. They have such a streamlined process that it does make it nearly impossible for your mom and pop retail shop to compete. And like we're saying, there is no community obligation, uh, ethical or moral, that occurs with a big company. And I think what you're saying is when a company gets bigger, that the company and the people running it, their attachment to social responsibility, even if they're virtue signaling and 
and saying like, we care about trans rights. It's like, really? Do you though, Bezos? Come on, Jeff. So I think it's it's very interesting that you have the decline of religiosity, morality, and then just overall uh, social cohesion that that comes from such a thing. Uh, you definitely have, listen, corporations, megacorps, they certainly have different objectives than your average American. And I believe those things are crashing into one another where it's basically harder and harder for an individual to have a family and be part of a community and, I don't know, feel as though somebody gives a shit about them. That's, uh, yeah, that's morbidly depressing, is it not? It is. So what do you do? What do you do? How do you... I don't have the right answer for you. I wish I did. Nobody seems to have an answer. I think one of the best things that we could do, to be honest with you, is repeal Citizens United, the court case that ruled that corporations are people and that they have the same rights as people and that political donations, money is considered a form of free speech. I think undoing that would be a start. I think more heavily enforcing uh, antitrust, anti-monopoly issues, things like that. These companies are so big and they're they're so entrenched in politics that it's hard to see how Amazon is not a monopoly and does not. How do they not exert an excessive force in the market? They have to look, look around. Probably an unpopular move to say, oh, let's enforce antitrust in a capitalist society. But there's kind of a pendulum here. You have to, it has to swing, it swings back and forth. And right now, these companies are just extremely powerful to the point where it's, it's bad for society. And I'm a true believer in capitalism. I think it's the best way. But every system has its limits. And when the average person, doesn't have as much economic opportunity because these big companies have so much market power. Certain things need to be changed for the good, for for everyone. Yeah, I mean, they're playing the game and uh, they're playing the capitalism game. They're not playing by the same rules because they don't have those moral obligations to either people of the country or even their own employees. So I would tend to agree with you. And I agree, capitalism is, I think, the most efficient system uh, where I get good at one thing, you're good at other things, we do what we're good at, and then we use money to exchange value for goods that we don't produce ourselves. Very smart, very efficient. But yeah, I think when you refine something and jack up the potency of it, um, it makes things a little bit different, right? I think there's a big difference, to put this in an analogy, between the uh, people of the Peruvian Andes chewing coca leaves to an executive doing a bunch of blow, right? I think smoking a little reefer versus taking out an industrial-looking crack pipe that is known for taking wax and dabs 
when you take something too far, it becomes a little bit perverse, and I think it has a negative effect. So one could say that moderation is key, but I would agree. I'll go back to one of your other points that you made a couple a couple of minutes ago, that these big companies, they are hiring the best and brightest in the entire world because they can. And if I'm trying to make the big bucks, if I'm a relatively competent person, why would I not take myself to the highest bidder to secure the resources for myself and my family? Why would I not do that? How can I make, how can you incentivize people to make less money? How can you incentivize companies to scale back their operations? I don't think you can. I don't think, you know, so you talk about dismantling some of these companies through antitrust litigation, which is an interesting route to take, but you would have to think that a lot of these companies have been anticipating such a thing for well over a decade, if not longer, and that they've made their, they've structured their businesses in a way that to the word of the law would insulate them from antitrust lawsuits. What do you think about that? I'm sure they have thought about that. These companies are extremely, extremely intelligent. They know what they're doing. They hire the best lawyers in the world. And even if you don't go so far as antitrust, I think even the tax structures is a bit perverse. For example, um, I think Amazon, I don't have the numbers. I have to look them up. But Amazon... Kyle, hit the numbers. <laughs> just the sheer amount of just the tax credit that they get where a small guy starting a business, what do they get? They don't get any tax credits. They say, oh, here's your uh, annual fee to establish a corporation in our state. Here's $800, $1,200 a year. You got to pay the state to have a corporation. Meanwhile, Amazon comes in and says, I'm going to have a second headquarters and we're going to tour a bunch of cities and these cities roll off the red carpet the mayor takes them out to nice dinners, pays for everything, and offers them billions of dollars in tax credits to move their company there, which arguably treats their employees pretty poorly. But yet, they're getting offered billions of dollars in tax credits to move to their state, which it makes sense from an individual city or state's point of view. They want to have a company move to their state. Hey, if Amazon's going to put companies out of business, and take jobs off the market when they take retail stores out of business, at least have them come to my state, right? So it makes sense when you look at each individual city's incentives. But when you look at the country as a whole, these states are bidding against each other to give Amazon the best deal, which is crazy. Amazon doesn't need the best deal. They're putting companies out of business. So I'm not sure what the best way to do it would be, but Maybe something which somehow the federal government outlaws, uh, you know, bidding for you know tax credits. Because at the end of the day, who suffers the most? The collective public suffers from these companies giving tax credits. But again, it makes sense for each individual city or state to do this. But again, as a whole, it hurts everyone. 
I, I wouldn't say this is just a U.S. thing. Um, that definitely happens around around the world. And, you know, I think the most depressing part of the whole shebang is that as an individual seeking recourse and saying like, hey, I want a small business. I want to do something on a smaller scale. I want to have a meaningful kind of community where I live in in the immediate. How does somebody do that when, I mean, if you look at the COVID blast, you just read me a stat earlier today that 53% of restaurants that have closed as a direct result of, we'll just call it Fauci's nonsense, they ain't going to reopen. And so as you have more and more small businesses getting squeezed, especially at a time like this, you're going to have more corporate influence and uh, domination of commerce than you would ever before. And so I think something that's making people deeply unhappy, I know we started on privacy and now we're getting into basically just the dynamics of huge corporations versus people and how they have different values, objectives. How do you reconcile that? I think that's the question that's on everyone's mind. But if you were to try to do anything that was sweeping, comprehensive, effective, know that you're going in a legal battle with probably some of the most skilled attorneys to ever walk the face of the planet, and that A, you'd get fucked, and B, you wouldn't even be able to compete in the legal proceedings because even if you had a case, they could bleed you dry with their legal slush fund and push you into bankruptcy over time by delaying, delaying, delaying until you are in financial ruin and they just keep on doing their deal. So we're definitely up against some major challenges, that's certain, but I would say that on the whole, all of the things that we are discussing are incredibly injurious to the morale, the will, um, the spirit of your average American and American family. Just looking up at the mountain and being like, where's my Sherpa? Why did Bezos get 40 Sherpas and I don't have a single Sherpa? And on that note, where we haven't resolved a single thing, but talked about some incredibly stimulating topics, I think we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, if you love this, if you'd like to hear Z some more, I know this is more high level than a lot of the Darby casts, and there aren't as many side trackings where it just goes completely out of bounds and barely even makes sense. This made too much sense. That's my only criticism of it. But send your feedback to info at DarbyshireUSA.com if you loved it. If you hated it, go fuck yourself. I think that's important. But yeah, this is, uh, we'll call this the official beginning of season two. Z, thank you for taking time out of your day to post up and 
You know, just look at that mountain and look at Bezos and his 40 Sherpas and say, like, I hate climbing. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, that's it. That's a, that's a big old Darby cast. And um, yeah, to sum it all up, you know, big companies using big data, causing big problems, big decline in the social fabric of the country. Very inspiring stuff to listen to and take in and integrate into your understanding of the world. But yeah, to sum it up, it seems like uh, there's some big things happening with big tech violating privacy, even though people consent to it. They don't really know what they're consenting to. Some would call that tech rape. I don't know who those people would be, but some people out there might call it that. These big old companies... They are utilizing really, really fascinating technologies, but in doing so are increasing their market share. They're flexing on people real hard. They're flexing on people. Their technology kind of uh, and the big data analysis, the fact that they have all this investment into analysis that gets them to sell products better, it's all but deteriorated the ability of small business owners, medium-sized business owners to compete. And when you have fewer of those businesses and you have a depersonalization in the workplace, uh, that kind of bleeds over into the community. And when you have fewer and fewer mom-and-pop shops that give a place character, the culture suffers. Tech is the new religion. It's interesting how it's doesn't bring people together. It's pushing people farther apart. And there's a part of it that's really impressive, but there's also a part of it that's that's horrifying where it's like, oh man, this is going to be pretty hard to scale back. Having these big companies shaping so much with these really mind-blowing technologies I think a lot of people have plenty of questions and they're like, hey, so you, you're the good guys, right? I think a lot of people would like to think that these tech companies are benevolent, but, and some of them might be at the moment, but who knows if they'll stay that way. And with the power that they hold and the ability to influence, the ability they have to influence your decisions on not just your purchases, but your politics, I think is really something. And you get into the discussion of, okay, now we're talking about the decline of free will. There are a lot of pieces of this that we touched on today. None of them horribly uplifting, but I think knowing is, uh, and having that awareness is pretty critical. We're lucky to have a guy like Z on the Darby cast. And we only scratched the surface and we kind of bounced all over the place. Any one of the mini discussions within the larger interview, we probably could have gone for, I don't know, an hour on each point, but that's not how the Darby cast goes. That's most people don't have the attention span for that, but hoping you liked it and 
yeah, we'll just kind of see how it plays. Consider this the beginning of season two of DarbyCast, where I pull some people for some interviews and talk about interesting stuff that's on people's minds. I feel like the stuff that you see in news, there's a lot of things that'll grab your attention, but a lot of the biggest issues are ones that aren't widely reported on. And I would have to say that the corporate takeover of America by utilizing fascinating uh, technologies and big data to influence the individual to make more purchases than they normally would, thereby making these companies more successful. And then they reinvest in more data science and they get further and further and further ahead. And to bring it into the discussion of monopolies, you know, they have, because they've done so well selling so many products by their usage of big data, they can really attract high level talent that will make dismantling these companies especially difficult. And that's, uh, that's what we're up against. As somebody who might want to open a small business, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to compete with the mathematical efficiency of these companies. You're going to struggle against them potentially legally. You're going to, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really rough go. So, yeah. American life is becoming more fragmented, decentralized. Our institutions are not necessarily effective. I think a lot of institutions that might in the past may have helped us navigate these tricky situations. I don't even know if, uh, if the U.S. government can really reel in big tech because it's not like we're uh, we're necessarily investing in big data as these companies are doing. Yeah, that's the game we're playing is the kind of, I call it breakaway capitalism where it's like, hey, we're so fucking big now that no one can stop us. And right now, in a lot of ways, that looks accurate. So that's frightening. But it's very hard when you have these corporations that can change attitudes, beliefs, can make big money at will. And it's not as though they've been doing anything necessarily illegal. I don't know. Maybe some of them have. But the fact that they're so freaking good at the game, and they're kind of using a game shark, that's kind of big data in a nutshell, is it's a game shark. And they got all the cheat codes. And they're far ahead. And that'll do it for DarbyCast today. We'll leave on Game Sharks, Sherpas, and Arby's. Have a great rest of your day.